This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Welcome to the program. I would like to uh, start out this program for one minute by noting that, uh, speaking for myself, I think I uh, erred against one of our cardinal principles here on this program last week in joining the voices of protest regarding this emergency alert system EAS incident, wherein KFBK, 1530 AM, which is the uh, the clearinghouse or the central location from which these EA, EAS messages are distributed, managed to insert an ad, a paid political ad for Dick Mountjoy, making some... Uh, <laughs> some grave uh, assertions about how uh, immigrants are murdering Americans. Chris, here on KDVS, you, you, you never hear paid political advertising. I'm sure that's, that's a major reason why you do tune in, dear listener. But uh, we think we violated the principle that you should not attribute to malice that which is adequately explained by stupidity in this particular case. We don't know whether this was deliberate or an accident, but we think it, in all fairness to KFBK, we should have probably assumed that it was accidental. We do, however, support an effort to formally investigate this by the Federal Communications Commission. Particularly given KFBK's track record in the past when uh, they were doing things like uh, DJ Mark Williams was calling for people to come out and protest on the Capitol steps against the election recount. Remember that during Florida 2000? We spend a lot of time here at KDVS, a community radio station operated by students here at the University of California, Davis. We worry about, um, you know, making a mistake, having some obscenity get out. A lot of time is spent on this in the wake of the FCC's crackdown uh, after uh, uh, Janet Jackson's breast made that unexpected appearance during a Super Bowl halftime uh, show. We think KFBK has uh, gotten away with murder, and, and, and no, not just because they broadcast Rush Limbaugh 15 hours a week, but, uh, you know, an investigation should be made, and uh, when it is, we'll report on it. We certainly think they should be held accountable to the same standards that we are. On the flip side of things, I'd like to note what a joy it was to be driving back from the Bay Area last week and getting within range of K-Dirt which was airing an absolutely fabulous program produced by Radio Pacifica about a congressman here who used to belong to the CIA. First rate. It was, I, mean, I was driving around hundreds of miles that day all over Northern California, and I got to say, the best radio I heard all day came right out of here of our local low-power KDRT here in Davis. All right, let's begin the program with On This Date in History, which in this case is November 16th. On this date in 1841, a Russian court sentenced Fyodor Dostoevsky to death for his alleged anti-government activities linked to a radical intellectual group. Luckily for Dostoevsky, his execution was stayed at the last minute. Dostoevsky's novels include Crime and Punishment and The Brothers Karamazov, which did a lot of the pioneering work later repeated by both the Three Stooges and Marx Brothers. Kidding. On this date in 1920, November 16th, the Russian Civil War ended with a victory for the Bolsheviks. 
That is actually an extremely important and um, really fascinating uh, conflict that we don't really hear much about. Not a lot talked about in the history books. And in some future program, I think we're going to try and correct that deficiency. That uh, that really determined the course that uh, what became the Soviet Union would take uh, once the Red Army beat that of the uh, anti-Bolshevik White Army, which, by the way, received an awful lot of funding from the Western powers. And I probably shouldn't include this one, but, uh, but I just can't resist. On November 16, 1938, during a soccer match between England and Ireland... Englishman Willie Hall scored three goals in three and a half minutes, a record for an international soccer event. Imagine scoring three times in less than four minutes. And I think that's about all I'm going to say on the subject of soccer today. And on November 16, 1945, the United States imported 88 German scientists to assist in developing rocket technology. Most of these men had served under the Nazi regime, and critics questioned the morality of the move. But fearful that the Russians were also utilizing captured German scientists for the same end, and they certainly were, the U.S. government welcomed the men with open arms. Gather round while I sing you of Werner von Braun, a man whose allegiance is ruled by expedience. Call him a Nazi, he won't even frown. A Nazi schmatzi, says Werner von Braun. <laughs> Don't say that he's hypocritical. Say rather that he's apolitical. Once the rockets are up, who cares where they come down? That's not my department, says Werner von Braun. Now, we just couldn't resist the opportunity to segue into Tom Lehrer's Werner von Braun. If you're, if you're over 45, you certainly remember the efforts of Dr. von Braun, uh, the successful efforts to get us to the moon. Our quotes of the day come from the same conversation that took place during Katherine Harris's run for the Senate. Uh, Representative Harris, Republican of Florida, her then-campaign advisor Ed Rollins, that God had instructed her to stay in the Senate race against Democrat Bill Nelson. Given a campaign in disarray and trailing by double digits, this prompted Ed Rollins to reply, Maybe God wants Nelson to stay a senator, and that's why he's encouraging you to stay in. And we can't resist noting the Onion headline from last week. Rumsfeld, my half-assed job here is done. The Onion then quotes the former defense secretary as saying, he'd proudly accomplished everything he'd set out to bungle. Years ago, I decided to bog this great nation down in an extended, grueling foreign occupation. And I'm happy to say that's exactly what I've done. Our statistic of the day, a statistics of the day, we have two. Uh, are the following. The Washington Post noted that political campaigns and interest groups spent more than $2 billion in advertising for the midterm elections. That's $400 million more than was spent in the 2004 presidential campaign. We quoted the Democratic National Committee and Republican National Committees on this show some months ago, noting that they were going to spend 12 and $60 million, respectively, uh, in the various campaigns across the U.S. We thought that was a grotesque uh, underestimation of expenses, and indeed, uh, it appears it was. 
When you consider what TV advertising costs, uh, I kind of doubt that they even got in at $2 billion, But, uh, well, we'll leave it stand. We couldn't resist this one from the London Guardian. Britons consider President Bush a greater threat to world peace than Kim Jong-il and President Mahmoud Ahmadinejad of Iran. 75% of Britons say Bush poses a great or moderate danger to peace compared to 69% for Kim and 62% for Ahmadinejad. All right, let's do the good, the bad, and the ugly. According to The Week magazine, last week was a good week for putting your best foot forward, so to speak, noting that an Australian firm has launched the Wonder Cup, a line of underwear that claims to do for male genitalia what the Wonder Bra does for women's breasts. It basically lifts, separates, and extends, said creator Sean Ashby. It was, on the other hand, a bad week for jet-setters. After University of Virginia scientists announced that mice subjected to the rigors of international travel, i.e. disrupted sleep schedules, arrhythmic patterns of light and dark, uh, died unusually young. According to uh, The Economist magazine, a surprising number of elderly mice died when the daily cycle of light followed by darkness was altered so that the light came six hours earlier. So I guess the message in this is, if you're going to fly, fly west. And last week was an ugly week for military recruiting, after ABC News reported that military recruiters are blatantly misrepresenting the war in Iraq in order to sign up new soldiers. The network sent 10 soldiers equipped with hidden video cameras into Army recruiting offices in New York, New Jersey, and Connecticut. In one recorded exchange, one student asks, no one's going over to Iraq anymore. The, re the recruiter replied, no, we're bringing people back. We're not at war. Another recruiter claimed that if new recruits didn't like the Army, they could quit any time. Commented Colonel Robert Manning, who heads Army recruiting in the Northeast, it's hard to believe some of the things they are telling prospective applicants. I still believe this is the exception more than the norm. Well, we at Radio Parallax certainly hope so, but profoundly doubt it. The Army says it will investigate. And from the Only in America file, we have the following. A retired New Jersey police officer is suing a man whose life he saved on the grounds that their encounter left him depressed. Two years ago, Sergeant Ron Nemetko calmly persuaded a suicidal fellow officer, Patrick O'Connor, not to kill himself during a 45-minute standoff. Nemetko now claims the incident has left him with depression and frequent nightmares, for which he wants financial compensation. You would think a fellow officer would be sympathetic to what Pat's gone through, said Alan Zegas, a lawyer for O'Connor. All right, that's the good, the bad, and the ugly.
All right, we hope that uh, you caught the HBO special, Hacking Democracy. Uh, We're hoping to get uh, Bev Harris from Black Box Voting on this program. We've been trying to get Bev for quite some time. Uh, The reports around the country are that, well, there may have been some hiccups and glitches, but by gosh, it appears that electronic voting appeared to have worked. Well, Brad Friedman is extremely skeptical, and Brad's been on the show a couple times. We're pretty sure we can get him back to talk about what happened on Election Day, but it certainly was not a bed of roses across the country. Uh, Deborah Bowen, newly elected Secretary of State here in California, will hopefully address the issue of these, uh, these untrustworthy machines and see if we can't uh, you know, clean this up a bit. Personally, we at Radio Parallax would sort of compare this to the Gary Larson cartoon of the Viking at the castle gate looking down saying, hey, it's just a big wiener dog. Let him in. (laughs) When when there's a dachshund head and what appears to be about 20 soldiers under a blanket behind him. If you've you've seen this cartoon, and you probably have. I think you, you, you know, know what we're talking about. Enough said. And we can't help but get a chuckle on this program to see how the neocons have now turned on the Bush administration with a vengeance. These guys were the brain trust that said, among other things, this war would be a cakewalk. Former White House advisor Kenneth Cakewalk Edelman is now saying that the Bush administration is among the most competent teams since World War II. Chief among the defectors is former Bush advisor Richard Pearl formerly caricatured as the Prince of Darkness. He's the man who first sold George W. Bush on the idea of spreading democracy throughout the Middle East. Pearl now says he wouldn't have pushed for war if he'd known that the occupation would be so horribly managed. But my favorite comes from Bush's former speechwriter, David Axis of Evil From, who says that the president's inability to absorb complex ideas, quote, is the root of maybe everything. In my head, I'd be scratching while my thoughts were busy hatching if I only had a brain. All right, on the international scene, uh, former revolutionary Sandinista leader of Nicaragua, Daniel Ortega, has made a surprising political comeback, uh, winning less than 40% of the vote, but (laughs) conveniently becoming the president because his party cut a deal to where you could win the presidency with less than 40% of the vote. Ortega seems to have lost a bit of his revolutionary zeal. In fact, his campaign speeches were repeatedly referred to God, to love, to respect for life, to peace and mercy. And the theme for his campaign was actually John Lennon's Give Peace a Chance. Wrote Efren Bonilla in Honduras's Tiempo, This Ortega is a far cry from the armed rebel who vowed to wrest the country's wealth from the few and give it to the poor. Indeed, He is flush with the wealth he gained, largely through nationalizing estates and redistributing them to his cronies. That was when he held power back in the 1980s. Said uh, Mr. Bonilla that Ortega is in fact one of the prosperous businessmen he once condemned as the Nicaraguan oligarchy. This correspondent will be making a trip down to Central America next month and will visit Honduras and Nicaragua. And, uh, you know, we'll see if we can't arrange an interview with President Ortega. Not likely we'll be granted one, but uh, what the heck. We're happy to report that uh, An Song Suu Kyi, the Burmese political prisoner, 
the daughter of the really the hero of the Burmese uh, efforts to become independent, An Song, uh, won the election in Burma a few years ago, causing the ruling junta to put her under house arrest. The UN, of course, uh, has not forgotten about her, neither have we, neither have uh, a lot of the world's media, and uh, she met with Ibrahim Gambari in Rangoon to um, convey that she is in good health but requires more regular medical visits. Ibrahim Gambari is pressing Burma's military government to adopt human rights and political reforms. And uh, speaking of liberating political influences, we would note with some happiness that uh, Keith Olbermann at uh, MSNBC uh, appears to be gathering very good ratings. Uh, He's positioned himself as the anti-Bill O'Reilly, and a lot of folks appreciate what he is saying. I I would say that uh, we've been very impressed listening to what Keith Olbermann has said about numerous issues. In fact, a lot of times he appears to be the only anchor of any capacity covering such things as the problems with electronic voting. And uh, being uh, very skeptical about some of the electoral returns in some recent past elections. We'd also like to note that documentary filmmaker Robert Greenwald has added again. Greenwald has produced documentaries about the Walmart, about the war in Iraq, Uncovered, which he spoke to us about on this program, uh, as well as Outfoxed, as, as his attack on the Fox News Network. His most recent effort is called Iraq for Sale, The War Profiteers. Greenwald appeared on, uh, on KGO in the Bay Area last week with a terrific interview with Corell. And I wanted to end the first segment today with uh, the quote he gave the interviewer from Newsweek, who asked him, would you say your films are balanced? Greenwald said, no, but they're truthful. Do I have to show a side that isn't truthful, that doesn't have the facts behind it in order to create balance? I argue, no. And uh, to that we say bravo. I mean, Fox News can claim that it is fair and balanced, uh, you know, in a mockery of that phrase. They can put Sean Hannity out there to beat up on Alan Combs and pretend, see, we put out both sides. But I think a lot of news outlets are getting tripped up by this idea that you have to present both sides. Well, not if one side's putting out a pack of lies. At least that's our official position here at Radio Parallax. We might want to note at this juncture that the opinions expressed on this program do not represent those of the radio station or our sponsors. But then, you know from listening that we pretty consistently do hit the nail on the head. All right, I'm Douglas Everett. You're listening to Radio Parallax. Let's take a short break, after which we will return to talk with someone we promised you many months ago. Rita Malouf, now a UC Davis student, she witnessed in Lebanon last July.
All right, we promised on this program last July that if possible, we would speak with Rita Malouf. As you may recall, Rita was in Lebanon at the time of the Israeli attack, and an article about her reports via email from Lebanon appeared in the Sacramento News and Review as part of an, in essence, internet interview with R.V. Scheid. She's now returned stateside, is in Davis, where she is attending school as a Regent Scholar, and we're very pleased to have her finally join us on the program. Welcome, Rita Malouf. Thank you. Rita, tell us how it is you came to be in Lebanon at the time of the Israeli attack. I was visiting my parents over the summer, and uh, I was supposed to stay there for a month, and two weeks after I arrived, things started happening, and I got stuck there for two and a half months. And uh, you were finally evacuated out, or you just finally just find your way out? When I came back, it was when they opened the airport. They did have evacuations towards uh, the middle of the war, but I decided not to leave because my parents were there. So, you know, I mean, I can, I can, if I leave, I'm surviving, but I leave my parents to die. So I decided to stay with them, you know, if I can help out. Um, people that we know and people that we're friends with died. And we should note that your your dad is Lebanese, your mom's American, you have extended family throughout the country. Correct, correct. And and you yourself were, were raised in Lebanon. Correct. I was raised um, in Lebanon for around 20 years, and then um, four years ago I came here. Now how has you managed to get uh, some of your reports, your dispatches, as it were, into the hands of a reporter? Well, I was in a shock uh, state. Um, seeing everything I was seeing and um, not being able to do anything about it. So um, the first thing I did one night, you know, I was just crying and did not know what to do. It sounds kind of uh, funny, but at the time I really didn't know what to do. And I decided to write an email to my friends, you know. It was more like a letter not knowing what's going to happen the next day. And I sent out some pictures with it, and uh, I told everybody, you know, what what I was doing there and, you know, what I'm scared of. And I sent it to all my friends, and I told them to send it to everybody they knew. And I guess a teacher of mine sent it to a reporter, and that's how we con- he contacted me. I, at first he thought it was one of those uh, spam mails where, you know, he, he thought it was a junk mail, but yeah. he soon knew that it wasn't. Well, Rita, in looking, I have your article in front of me. You should point out to listeners this is still available online on the July 27th edition of the Sacramento News and Review. Includes a picture taken by Sarah Hunter of uh, that shows, well, what the effects of the, the aftermath of the attack with some, some oil fires, an oil tank burning in, in Beirut. You saw quite a bit of that, I guess. Yes, uh, actually, I live 10 minutes away if you want to drive to where things were happening. We could see all the bombs that were hitting Beirut. I couldn't see the south, but Beirut was enough for me to realize there's something wrong happening. Um, We could also see the airport when it was being hit. Um, Actually, my house would shake um, every time a bomb would fall. That's how strong these bombs were. Uh, Looking at your article, I... um was really surprised to note, Rita, that you pointed out that the invasion took place just right after those soldiers had been uh, been kidnapped. Obviously, this was an operation that took a lot of preparation, 
And some people have claimed that, well, that the the kidnapping of those uh, those soldiers was was an excuse to to launch this war, which is planned. And ov- and obviously that had to be the case. I I'm not going to claim anything, but I would say it was pretty weird the way things happened. Um, when we knew about it, it was around nine in the morning, and around noon we started hearing bombs uh, hitting Lebanon. So it was pretty quick for you know, a war to start, a war that's going to last over a month, um, for it to be decided on, you know, in two hours, two, three hours, something was fishy. And um, a lot of people believe that this was a prepared war. Now, if you ask um, intelligence or whatever in Lebanon, they, you know, they, they say that they have proof that this war has been prepared ahead of time. And some of the proof is they had a lot of people helping them, you know, in Lebanon. Um, a lot of foreign workers were helping out. Some were actually Lebanese, but the most of them weren't. Uh, they were putting signals on buildings. They were putting, um, if I'm not mistaken, like uh, phosphorus um, signals on buildings. So during the night, um, they would uh, air attack these buildings. They'd probably light up under the under the lasers or something yes. like that. Yes. Yeah. And. Um, these were noticed, you know, a few weeks later. A lot of people were caught doing that um, on, on on buildings, on specific areas uh, in the in the country. Um, so we were mostly scared at night because that's where most of the attacks would come in in our region. Um, we didn't really get a lot of sleep from that, but you know, I guess we survived. So we were lucky. As you come here and see the coverage of what uh, what is said about what happened in Lebanon and what you experienced, what strikes you the most about being what's inaccurate? Well, the way they kind of relate the story, you know, first of all, Lebanon is really far from here, so I would understand how um, how the story can change coming, you know, to the American news. But I realized that it's it's um, holding back a lot on information uh, that will help people understand what's going on. Um, you know, we're calling this group uh, terrorist group, and we're relating it to different terrorist uh, organizations in the world, and and that's pretty scary because in in my country, the majority of people never saw that group as a terrorist group. And, You're talking about Hezbollah. Yes. Yeah. Um, I don't think I can claim too much about it, but I haven't seen anything that's terrorist about it. It was actually a very respected group in Lebanon, very organized. This is why a lot of people think it's scary, very organized and very honest in, in many ways. Now, you know, this is this can only be seen, also be seen as radicalism, but people respect that group in Lebanon. There are a, a minority that doesn't. So most of the time, the media here, um, whenever they quote someone, they're quoting the minority, which is, um, my opinion, it, it's, a, it's a rich um, rich minority that really um, doesn't mind the few things that are going wrong in Lebanon because their economical state is still, is still fine during and, and, and without war. When they hear the story, uh, here, they're not hearing how many people are dying in Lebanon. They're not hearing how many civilians of those people dying in Lebanon. They don't hear how many cities are being completely destroyed. Um, I'm not talking about hitting this building or hitting that building. I'm right. talking about a whole village being destroyed to the ground. They're not hearing about the different um, 
different bombs being used. There are some um, debates about if they're legal or illegal, but some of them are really clear that, you know, <clears throat> are illegal or illegally used. Uh, I'm going to give examples like cluster bombs. They're, you know, every time someone brings up the issue of cluster bombs, they say, oh, it's not an illegal bomb, but it's illegal in civilian areas. Um, Rita, Rita, we should explain We should explain about what cluster bombs are. Okay, cluster bombs are, um, I would say, a big bomb. You throw it, and when it, you know, it, it breaks and it throws out little bombs in it. And um, each bomb um, sits on the ground and, uh, well, it's supposed to explode while falling or when it hits the ground, but the majority of these bombs don't actually explode when they hit the ground. They, in essence, then become booby traps all over, the, all over wherever they fall. Correct. And when someone approaches it or touches it or, or makes it shake or walk next to it, it will explode and throw out little metal pieces that will, uh, you know, perform uh, a human body. So these, these bombs, they're not made for, you know, destroying buildings. They're actually made for humans. The last 72 hours of the war, you know, after the Lebanese government agreed on following the, the, the decision, they threw uh, so many of these bombs, I don't really have numbers, but it's in, in, in the millions. And, um, oh my God. Uh, and, and these were thrown around houses, um, in gardens, on the streets, um, in, um, in the fields, you know, agricultural fields. So this is crippling, you know, the whole life and in the south mostly, they, they did throw some of them around, uh, you know, Beirut. This is why you know, not a lot of reporters went in some areas, but um, to get rid of those bombs takes a lot of work and it's really hard. And some of the army, um, people that are trying to, you know, work with these bombs, try to um, and destroy them, they, some of them died doing that. And uh, a lot of children are dying from those because they don't really know what they are and they look like toys. So they don't all look the same. They made it to trick people. You know, you can't just know how it looks and avoid it because each one is different. So uh, you think you know how they look like, but then you discover, you know, in an accident that, oh, there's a different kind too. Wow, I did not know that. Some of them look like lighters. Some of them look like toys. Wow. Another bomb would be the suction bomb. And this bomb, I didn't even know it existed until this summer. It sucks all the air out of a building and it crumbles to the ground. First of all, people will all go to the lower ground, or underground, or the lower uh, floors. And unfortunately, that wasn't very smart, you know, because they didn't know these bombs were being used. So uh -huh. the attacks would hit the first floor or second floor, and the whole building will crumble. Um, first of all, these bombs were strengthened bombs. We knew that a couple of months after. But these bombs are strengthened with uranium and they suck the air out of the building and everything alive in it will die too. So no one survived from these buildings. These wow. buildings were in areas where not everybody had evacuated and some areas where they didn't have the option of evacuating. A third type of bomb was, was used. Uh, it was the white phosphorus bomb. Now this bomb, it's not illegal, but the way they were using it but, you know, it was a violation of the Geneva Convention. You know, it was not supposed to be used in a civilian area. Uh, this bomb was proven to be, to, 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 to be used in Lebanon this war. Just the bomb that, that, that's like napalm hard to extinguish? Yeah, so when, 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 when it hits the air, it'll burst in flames. So 
these are bombs that are being used. I want to emphasize on the idea of civilians. These, you know, these are civilians that are dying. I'm, I'm not really defending either party, but I'm saying where, you know, these are civilian being bombed. And, you know, if that's the case on the other side, you know, in Israel, I'm, I'm against it. You know, I'm also against it. I'm against civilian people dying in Israel, too. Civilians did not agree on fighting. They did not agree on, you know, they were put into this, and most of them are children. Well, Rita, we, we want very much, uh, maybe after the after the first of the year, to have you come back and give us an update on what is going on over there. But, but in closing today, could you tell us what you think people who are listening and want to do something about this could do in the way of uh, some humanitarian aid? There are many sites where you can donate money for these people, but I'm one of the few that insist on money is not the solution. I don't think people should be donating money at this point, although there, there is a need for financial help. But what I emphasize on is knowing what's going on and not accepting, you know, something that would hurt civilians. The media here is showing things that would kind of alienate the American society from what's going on there. What's going on there is really um, not okay. Um, people should relate to it. These are people like myself. These are educated people. These are people that just want to live normal lives. Uh, what they need right now is people here not to support the war. We want people here to cr criticize what they hear in the news. I, I, I push people to read the news from different sources, listen to news from different sources, and, and not depend on one source. Listening to the news and trying to figure out the truth. Well, Rita, we certainly want to give you the chance to do that uh, again in the future. We have, uh, we're in complete sync with you on this. We recommend it on this show. People do need to go to various media sources to try and get the real picture of what's going on uh, all over the world. And certainly in the case of what's going on in the Middle East, I would offer my opinion that uh, the mainstream media in this country is extremely biased toward a pro-Israeli view of events over there. So I would encourage them to go to perhaps some of the European news sources, which are more balanced, in my opinion, in their coverage. Rita Malouf, thank you so much for joining us, and uh, good luck with finals, and we'll talk to you again in 2007. All right, thank you very much. I look forward to that. All righty, and good luck in finals. Uh, yes, thank you. <laughs> Everybody, pray for me. <laughs> Before we leave this topic, we'd like to note uh, an article from the Sacramento Bee last Sunday. Lebanon facing new crisis. Talks on Hezbollah role fail. Reported the New York Times, Lebanon was thrown into a political crisis Saturday when talks broke down over giving the militant faction Hezbollah and its political allies greater control of the government. Noted the Times, Lebanon's political stability and the success or failure of the current government is not just consequential for this country of four million. It is part of a broader contest between the United States, which backs the government coalition, and Iran and Syria, which support Hezbollah. Of course, I hate to see it framed that way. Uh, U.S. group versus Iran and Syria group. I think there's more to Hezbollah than that, and we will return to this topic, uh, as we say, in the future. In a related story at the United Nations, the U.S., 
vetoed a U.N. Security Council draft resolution that sought to condemn an Israeli military offensive in the Gaza Strip and demand Israeli troops pull out of the territory. U.S. Ambassador John Bolton said the Arab-backed draft resolution was biased against Israel and politically motivated. The U.N. Security Council was considering action after an Israeli artillery barrage in the northern Gaza town of Beit Hanun killed 19 people the previous Wednesday. And on the flip side of the U.S. going to bat for Israel in the U.N., we have the following. Dateline Havana. A record 183 countries of the United Nations voted to condemn the U.S. embargo against communist-led Cuba with one country abstaining and only three others joining the U.S. to endorse the tough economic sanctions. This marked the 15th straight year that the United Nations General Assembly had rejected the embargo and urged Washington to lift it. The George W. Bush administration claims the embargo is a private matter with Havana and not the domain of the United Nations. We would note, not coincidentally, that the Miami anti-Castro-Cuban community is very prominent in Republican politics down in the state of Florida. But this record 183 countries topped the 182 countries that condemned the embargo last year. If you're keeping score, Micronesia abstained, whereas the Marshall Islands, Palau, and Israel voted with the United States. Last year, they were joined by Montenegro, which this year switched sides and voted with the majority. You know, we are judged sometimes by the company we keep. We would like to note the United States' posse in this consisted again of Israel, the Marshall Islands, and Palau. And if you look at a map, and we hope you will, you will note that Micronesia, the Marshall Islands, and Palau are all in the same broad neighborhood in the North Pacific Ocean and are pretty much extremely influenced by the United States presence in that area. Anyway, let's take a break. I'm Douglas Everett. You're listening to Radio Parallax. We mentioned on the program a couple weeks ago that we were going to have uh, really an embarrassment of riches regarding some distinguished uh, persons appearing locally. Senator Robert Dole was here at the Mondavi Center on uh, the 4th. Unfortunately, we were unable to attend and uh, didn't have anyone there for us. Walter Cronkite then appeared at the University of Pacific on the 6th, Monday, and unfortunately we had no correspondence 
there either. Fortunately for us, when Oliver Stone came to speak here at Sacramento State University, KDVS does have its own liaison to CSUS, and she now joins us here on Radio Parallax. Welcome back, Sarah Lynn. Thank you. It's great to be back, Doug. Um, How was the turnout for Oliver Stone? Really, really good. A lot of people came up. It was about 100, 200 people there. It was really nice. How big a venue was that? Was it was it jam packed or? Well, it was a huge lecture hall. There were still some spaces that needed to be filled, but a lot of people showed up. It was nice. Well, his latest film was World Trade Center. Did he did he did he spend a lot of time plugging his latest effort, or did he talk about all of his movies? He covered all of his movies, but he did. He went into um, how he felt about what was happening in Iraq and the war, and how he tied it into Vietnam, and it was really good. A lot of Q&A? Yeah, actually, um, a big part of it was questions and answers. And a lot of people stood in line. He did this whole stand in line where you'd ask him a question, he'd answer it. And a lot of people just went up just to shake his hand because they were so like moved by him. Did you get a sense for which of his films people responded to most warmly? He's got quite a body of work. Yes, he does. Uh, a lot of people talked about Born on the Fourth of July, and a lot of people talked about Platoon and Natural Born Killers. Natural Born Killers is one of my favorites myself. Actually, I guess I, could, I need to interject at this point my own Oliver Stone anecdote, which Sarah's why why I asked you about his films because really, I can say we do a radio show here because of Oliver Stone's movie JFK. After seeing that, and at the end of the movie in particular, when he mentioned how many records were regarding the assassination of President Kennedy that were still being hidden, Americans got really mad, and it was a big to-do politically for quite a while. And, all, and Oliver Stone is still considered this, you know, conspiracy theorist, really largely because of the movie um, JFK. In the wake of that, uh, I got interested in what really happened to President Kennedy, decided I would try and determine Know, what what the story really was and what what the events really what really took place on November twenty second, nineteen sixty three. Uh, I still don't know, by the way, these many years later. But I know who's uh, I know who's lying about what happened that day. As a medical doctor, I was able to read some of the um, the reports, various doctors' reports from that day and afterwards at the autopsy, and I realized that something was wrong. When the Journal of the American Medical Association put an article out later, there was going to be a big medical debate in Chicago about it. And Dr. Cyril Wecht, who's been on this program and is, you know, you probably know him from, from various famous cases, he's on TV a lot, was going to debate some of the, um, the, other, the other side, the medical side in Chicago. I went there to take part in, in that debate as, a, as an assistant, I guess, as you will. And as it happened... Oliver Stone came in and joined us. Actually, very personable guy, very fun guy, but he was describing this upcoming movie he was making called Natural Born Killers, and I kept thinking, I, I, I don't get why this is going to be funny. But uh, when I finally did see it, it was really striking because I'd heard from the director, the one time in my life I'll hear about a major movie you know, from the director's mouth before it comes out, and I didn't get it when he described it, and I certainly didn't get it when I, when I saw it, but yet... You, you enjoyed it. Yes, I did. I thought it was pretty funny. Uh, some people, I think it's one of those movies that you either love it or you hate it, that some people get it, some people don't. <laughs> I thought it was interesting. Um, not one of his best, but I definitely liked it. Well, I'm curious that the audience did respond to that, and certainly uh, Platoon and, and Born on the Fourth of July are really, you know, tremendous efforts mm-hmm. related to the Vietnam War. Yes. What did he have to say about the, the, upco- the, the current conflict? Um, well, basically his message that he wanted to get across 
was just that we need to get out of this amnesia and how we keep repeating what's happened in the past and we're losing all of our rights and now you need money. How his movies help in some way, how he thinks that all movies, not just his, but movies can help in some way to show what's going on in other places and I guess sort of take part in moving people forward in the activist motions. Well, I suppose a lot of people got a better sense of a lot of what really took place in Vietnam by seeing Platoon than from maybe reading news reports or reading books. Yes. One thing that I wanted to add was that he was really amazing to see up on stage. He was a really good public speaker. Enjoyed watching him. Funny, personable guy. It was really interesting. A lot of people liked him. I, in fact, wanted to shake his hand afterwards, but, but you I didn't. didn't. I didn't. <laughs> no, that's too bad. Yeah. Yeah, I saw him give a talk at Stanford once. He he is uh, he's really quite comfortable in front of an audience mm-hmm. and knows how to talk to to like I think a younger generation. Yes, definitely. And he jokes around with you, and it was just really fun. I felt like he was talking to each of us individually. Okay. Like we were all asking him our own questions and. Yeah, I remember when one kid at Stanford walks up, take the mic, and, and Stone looks at him and pauses and goes, geez, you look just like Brad Pitt. <laughs> I'm sure that that guy, I'm sure it made that guy's day. Yeah, really. All right, well, Sarah, good job on your assignment there to see Oliver Stone. Thank you. But, uh, what what should we give you as a next assignment? Well, actually, appearing this Thursday evening is uh, Dr. Drew doing Loveline in the campus ballroom on Sac State. So I think I'm going to go and check that out. I'm really interested. Dr. Drew Pinsky, the Loveline host. Yes, I'm a huge fan. Okay, well, actually, as we're talking, I, I'm pulling up the CAP Radio uh, website. They, they spoke with Dr. Drew here, uh, Jeffrey Callison did, I guess, uh, yesterday. So people can... Uh, People can get an interview and insight, and then you'll 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 talk about what he had to say at Sac State next week. Yes, definitely. All very good. That was uh, Sarah Lynn, uh, Radio Parallax, and KDVS's own Sac State University correspondent. And uh, from our obituary section, which we engage in from time to time, we would note the passing of P.W. Botha. That's not how his name was pronounced in South Africa, but we'll stay with the Americanized version and quote The Economist, noting that another page of history has been turned in South Africa. P.W. Botha, who led the country from 1978 to 1989 at the height of the anti-apartheid struggle, died on October 31st at the age of 90. Listening to the messages of condolence to his family from former adversary Nelson Mandela and President Thabo Mbeki, it may seem strange to recall that he was once utterly reviled in South Africa and abroad. An unrepentant hardliner of irascible temper, Mr. Botha, known as the Great Crocodile, never apologized for the evils of apartheid. Yet, Mr. Mandela, faithful to his undying spirit of reconciliation, credits him for playing a critical role in bringing them to an end. And in fact, as Prime Minister and then President, Mr. Botha did start dismantling the structure of apartheid by repealing its most abhorrent laws. And he was the first apartheid leader to secretly meet with Nelson Mandela while the latter was still in prison. This reminds us in the program we were trying to uh, to speak with his uh, successor, F.W. de Klerk. We contacted Mr. de Klerk in South Africa last year. And he was amenable to uh, coming and speaking with us on this program, but a few details uh, kept us from doing that. We're gonna we're gonna revive that effort and see if we can't bring you Nobel Prize winner F. W. De Klerk. We would like to bring on Mr. De Klerk with his co-Nobel Prize recipient, um, 
uh, Nelson Mandela, but uh, Mr. Mandela's people have uh, uh, politely but firmly informed us that he is not doing interviews any longer. Sorry to say. I'd like to uh, close the program with some quotes here from an article by Ray McGovern. We were directed to this by our good friend Dr. Gary Aguilar, who's appeared in this program on a couple of occasions. This comes from ConsortiumNews.com and concerns Robert Gates. Robert Gates has been appointed by George W. Bush to replace Donald Rumsfeld as the new Secretary of Defense. Former Iran-Contra Special Prosecutor Lawrence Walsh also had some things to say about Mr. Gates. We would refer you to those on the web. But uh, Robert Parry and the good people at ConsortiumNews.com are pretty hard to beat. So I'd like to quote from Ray McGovern's article. Ray McGovern works with Tell the World, which is the publishing arm of the Ecumenical Church of the Savior in Washington, D.C. Mr. McGovern was a CIA analyst from 1963 to 1990. He noted in this article that I have known Robert Gates for 36 years, starting when Gates was a journeyman analyst in CIA's Soviet foreign policy branch, which I headed. McGovern starts for notice, noting how, uh, how Rumsfeld has been abandoned by his fair-weather friends among the neocons and said, I almost feel sorry for Donald Rumsfeld. And I'm not just saying that because with the Military Commissions Act, now signed into law, he can declare me, or anyone, an unlawful enemy combatant and disappear me into some black hole. Said McGovern, those close to Gates now say he's been privately critical of the way the war has been conducted, but he is the consummate chameleon. Clearly the beneficiary of the compared to what syndrome, Gates has been getting unduly positive press treatment since the announcement of his nomination. It is one thing to give him the benefit of the doubt. It is quite another to ignore the considerable baggage he brings with him from past service. Those of us who have had a front row seat to watch Gates' handling of substantive intelligence cannot overlook the manner in which he cooked it to the recipe of whomever he reported to. A protege of William Casey, President Ronald Reagan's CIA director, Gates learned well from his mentor. In 1995, Gates told the Washington Post Walter Pincus that he watched Casey on issue after issue sit in meetings and present intelligence framed in terms of the policy he wanted pursued. Gates followed suit, cooking the analysis to justify policies favored by Casey and the White House. The cooking was consequential. Said McGovern, I was amused to read in David Ignatius's Washington Post column this week that Gates, quote, was the brightest Soviet analyst in the CIA shop, so Casey soon appointed him to deputy director overseeing his fellow analysts. Said McGovern, he wasn't, and Casey had something other than expertise in mind. Talk to anyone who was there at the time, and they will explain that Gates's meteoric career had mostly to do with his uncanny ability to see a Russian under every rock turned over by Casey. Those of Gates' subordinates willing to see two Russians became branch chiefs. Three won you a division. I exaggerate only a little. McGovern noted that Robert Gates carried uh, Bill Casey's water and stifled all the dissent. And, quote, one consequence was that the CIA as an institution missed the implosion of the Soviet Union. No small matter. I have to inject at this point 
The fact that in the 1980s, some people, some voices were raised saying the Soviet Union is not the threat the Bush administration makes it out to be. You did hear that. You did hear people saying that, but they were drowned out by the Robert Gateses of the world who portrayed the Soviet Union as being, you know, uh, 10 feet tall. So in McGovern, in 1991, when President George H.W. Bush nominated Robert Gates for the post of Director of Central Intelligence, there was a virtual insurrection among CIA analysts who had suffered under his penchant for cooking intelligence. This is a great article. We recommend very highly that you read it. My final quote from it would just be as follows. There are early indications that Senator Carl Levin... Democrat Michigan, ranking Democrat on the Armed Forces Committee, tends to acquiesce in the maneuvering of the White House's cat's paw chairman of that committee, Senator John Warner, to rush the nomination through the lame duck Senate before a new Congress is in place. Whether Levin steps up to the plate on Gates will be an early indication of whether the election has implanted any spine into Democrats. I'd like to uh, close the program with our second obituary. That of Ed Bradley, the CBS uh, 60 Minutes correspondent who passed away last week from chronic lymphocytic leukemia at age 65. Ed Bradley joined the staff of 60 Minutes when Dan Rather left to replace Walter Cronkite as the anchor of the CBS Evening News. Over the course of his career, Bradley received 19 Emmys, a Peabody Award, a Paul White Award from the Radio and Television News Directors Association, the National Association of Black Journalists awarded Bradley in 2005 with their Lifetime Achievement Award. I happened to be in the same dining area once as Ed Bradley. That was in Chicago at the Ritz-Carlton in that meeting that I mentioned earlier in, uh, in this segment where, where Oliver Stone came in. Uh, before that point, four or five of us were sitting around the table. I noticed Ed Bradley a few tables away in a largely deserted dining room. And notice that when Oliver Stone came in to join us, Ed Bradley got up, threw down his napkin, and in a very uh, pointed gesture, stomped off in a huff. I think Oliver Stone must have noticed the gesture, but said nothing about it, uh, nor did Cyril Wecht nor anyone else at the table. It was an odd thing to witness, but I never did find out what was behind it. I'm sorry I didn't think to ask uh, Sarah Lynn to put that question to Oliver Stone if she'd gotten a chance to speak with him for a minute uh, after, the, after the talk. Maybe next time. I'd like to close with an email sent uh, to me by my fellow KDVS public affairs host, Franz Kassing, who noted about Ed Bradley that he once moonlighted as a disc jockey earning $1.50 an hour spinning records while working as a teacher by day. In his later years, he hosted the radio show Jazz at Lincoln Center. Said Bradley, The idea that I could go into a station and open the cabinet doors of what we called the library and pull out music past and present and play what I like to play, music I like to hear, and there were people out there listening to my taste in music, man, it just didn't get any better than that. You know, we think we know what he was talking about. Ed Bradley, gone but not forgotten. This program was produced by Edward McMillan. I'm Douglas Everett, and you've been listening to Radio Parallax. 
We'll see you next week at the same time.